God, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would make it fruitful for us and profitable for our instruction and our um, hungering for Jesus. We pray that it would drive us to love him more and to seek after him more intently. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We are number six. I know we're moving along so fast. Uh, we've been going through the first five chapters of Numbers so far, that, and we've seen in that that God has set apart Israel from the nations. He's organized the camp around the tabernacle, his presence there with them, and that he um, has set apart a priesthood and a tribe the Levites, to holiness and service in the tabernacle. However, in our passage today, we're going to see that the idea of consecration, of dedication to God, um, is extended to the common person of Israel through what's called the Nazarite vow. And this is the only place in Scripture where this is fleshed out. We see some references to it with some other people like Samuel, uh, uh, Samson, remember, he did I'm cut my hair. It's kind of a big thing with him and the hair. It's where all the mullets came from. I'm Samson. And so, um, the, and, and we talked about this in Acts with Paul, right? We talked about how when he came back in in order to show the Jews that he was consecrated, that he was holy and was not um, um, trying to desecrate the, ta the, the temple, he took a Nazarite vow to show where he was in, in relation to cultural Judaism. Um, but let's look at this vow starting in verse 1 in chapter 6. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, Whether a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite, or when either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, he shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All right, so we talk about then um, who can take the vow. First question, who can take this vow of the Nazarite in number six? Who can take it? Men and women. It's not... now. Who can be priests? Men. Men from the tribe of Levi, Levi right? So you have here an, a, a vow that they can take that, that, that is open to men and women. Um, how does he describe this vow? Verses 1 and, one and 2. How does he describe it? What is it called? It's a special vow. This word in Hebrew primarily signifies something that is wonderful or exceptional. Um, some translate this section as to make a remarkable vow. And as we see, uh, it's kind of a high bar on this vow. Uh, the word can also mean to accomplish something difficult. It's a, it's a tough road to fulfill this thing. He calls it the vow of the Nazarite. And this is not something that's necessarily uh, unique to Israel, actually. And in, in the culture of the time, in the, in the Old Testament times, there were certain... Um, cultural things, vows that they would make to the gods that are, are very, you know, high bar kind of things. Um, just, just to make it clear, the, um, the Nazarite vow is not the same as 
a Nazarene. The Nazarene is someone from the area of Nazareth. In now, I say this because this was a confusion I had for many, many years growing up. Why do these Nazare Nazarene people have all long hair? They can't drink. They come from this region. This is, a, this is a different thing. Completely different. So I draw that out for you so that you are not embarrassed like me in coming to the, the distinction. All right. Um, the Nazarite, that word, derives from a Hebrew verb that means to separate, dedicate, or concentrate. So all the holy eights are involved in this word, Nazar Nazarite. All right. Um, why would somebody take this vow? Does it say? To separate himself to the Lord. Okay. Any other reason? I mean, what's the, what's the benefit to this? Holiness. Aren't they already kind of holy through the burnt offering and all the sacrificial system? Does that not? More holier. More holier. <laughs> There's something to that. There is a, a consecration that's involved. Uh, there, that is, uh, that, that that kind of displays a fellowship with God um, among the among the people. Um, the examples that we have of this vow kind of give us a little insight. There's a pattern involved in where someone is in a period of distress. I'm thinking specifically of Samuel and Samson's mothers. Each of them vowed that. For Samuel, he won't cut his hair. That's well, a big thing in the Nazarite vow. Uh, for Samson, he says, I was a Nazarite from birth. Well, both of their mothers were, were barren and prayed to God, I will dedicate him to you know, the Nazarite or whatever, won't cut his hair. And all this. So there seems to be a pattern of distress or a time of great, um, I don't know, an obstacle that they're wanting God's help with, right? And and that's culturally that's that was the situation. You made these vows from a human to to the deity. If there was a time of distress and you wanted to consecrate yourself in order to help me through this, you know, kind of help me through this kind of thing. Um, and it, and it usually ends with a responsive offering at the completion of the vow. So when you when you see the Old Testament pattern here, it follows that same kind of of a cultural pattern, but it has prohibitions in this vow. What's the first one you see? No strong drink. No grapes. No grapes. The grape is verboden. The forbidden fruit. Very nice. No grapes. I mean, it's not just don't drink um, liquor. Don't drink any hooch. Uh, it is more than that. It's don't touch the skin. Don't eat the skin of grapes. Don't eat the seeds of grapes, which I wouldn't eat grape seeds anyway. But just <laughs> what all of it is forbidden. Yeah. Is this from God or is this something that they kind of stretch the law? No. Well, it starts with, and the Lord spoke to Moses. Oh. <laughs> so I'm just going to take it at face value. <laughs> that this is something that God did, uh, told them to do. And again, we see this again and again. He takes a cultural issue and reframes it into something to display a greater picture, right? He takes something that is common to them in their culture and makes it into um, a point. Uh, so the first four verses show us that the person is to abstain drinking wine and strong drinks. So no joy juice during the time of the vow. And the time of the vow is something that they determine. God doesn't say, if you take a Nazarite vow, it's only for three weeks. It's only for three years. He doesn't do that. When you take a vow, you're determining the time frame that that's going to be. And so he says, but when you, when you determine that time, 
you can't do this during that time. This is the way we do vows in Israel. Um, why would not drinking uh, wine or eating grapes or even drinking vinegar or what? I don't know why you would do that, but why, why is that a sacrifice? Why is that such a big deal? I mean, aren't they all Baptists? Why would that be a big deal? Because clean water isn't exactly common. Wine is a lot easier. Okay, so there may be a health issue there. That's a sacrifice, uh, sacrificial thing on the water issue. Um, maybe. Maybe there's some of that. What about uh, Passover or religious reasons? Like, uh, I mean, we, we take communion. Didn't they do something with the priests as well? Well, a fellowship offering usually involved um, drinking a drink offering. So Passover, a big feast. I guess you would plan your Nazarite vow around the Passover, right? right? Make sure you finished up just in time. Uh, but if, it, if they're taking Nazarite vow for a period of years, you're going to overlap that. So they would just abstain from, from, from the wine part of it, I guess. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. We're not really told. But why would that be a sacrifice? What, what is it about the grape that is such a sacrifice for them not to have? What do you think? Anytime you celebrate associated with joy. Anytime you celebrate in that culture you sing the song and then you there's usually wine involved, right? What was the big thing when the twelve spies came back out of Canaan? What did they bring with them? Grapes. Big old pile of grapes. I mean huge cluster of grapes. What did that tell them about the land? It's a rich land. It's a blessed land. It is a land of joy, right? The grape is wine and all of that is associated with joy. Now, there were prohibitions in the Old Testament for being too joyful. Um, you want to, you, you don't, it never promotes drunkenness, but wine is a blessing. Wine is a reward for hard work. Wine is a sign of God's grace and mercy, and, and, and it, it is a, an expression of thanksgiving to God in, in, uh, in a lot of these things. So the land of promise was well known for its wine. Um, the one taking the Nazarite vow can also, uh, can't, uh, is also told that they can't drink wine turned to vinegar. I don't know why you would want to. That doesn't sound like a huge thing to me. I wouldn't drink vinegar. But maybe it involves in like cooking or, or something along those lines. Maybe they're, they're not allowed to do that. Second, you can't, drink, you can't drink grape juice. So this even affected Baptists. Third, you can't eat grapes fried. Uh, fried. No fried grapes for you. No state fair grapes for you. It's Texas is out. Um, you, can't, you, can't drink, you can't eat grapes that are, are fresh or dried like raisins. You can't have raisins. So Del Monte is out for a while. Um, Fourth, you can't eat the seeds or the skin. So, I mean, this is just a complete prohibition from, from grapes. And this is all in addition to the no intoxicating drinks earlier. All right, let's look at verse 5. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow long. What a great statement that would be. What's the second prohibition? No cutting. No cutting the hair. What is up with that? Why is that a big deal? 
The, the language here reads, let the hair flow freely. Don't trim it. Let it be unkept. For a woman who usually had long hair, because it was her glory, it said, it's a good thing. Um, it was said to, they just left it unkept. They didn't put up a bun, no little thing over the head. Just leave it unkept. For a man, you can't cut it. You just let it run wild and go free, which had some swoop do effect maybe. I don't know what you do with some. I guess. Everything everything's not nose hairs. Nose hairs, I don't know. I don't see particular no, stop. I'm not doing the underarms. The Hebrew term here means to let something alone, to remove restraint, to let loose. In fact, this Nazarite issue of the hair, letting the hair be unkept. That became kind of a colloquial way of talking about letting a vineyard run free. It's a Nazarite vineyard, you know, <laughs> and leaving it unkept and untended. Um, so the dominant sign of someone under this vow is that their hair's not cut. That's the dominant sign. Of course, there's the no drink thing, and we'll see that uh, later on about the, the, the next provision here. But, but mainly it's this, you know you're a Nazarite, under a Nazarite vow, when your hair looks nappy. You know, it's all, all crazy. You know. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? 1 Corinthians 1.14. Why? Is it a big deal not to keep your hair kept? What is he? What is he? What is he pointing to here? It's it a, like a woman. You look like a woman. Well, what if a woman keeps her hair unkept? What? What is the? What is the big thing here? If it's a disgrace to you, what does that mean? It's humbling you. You're in a total atmosphere of humility, outwardly expressed by letting your hair be unkept and un, just, you know, not cut, not trim. It's a sign of humility before God. And what, is, what does he say this does? What, what is, how does he describe this in verse 5? Your unkept, uncut hair is what? He is what? Starts with an H, ends with an Oli. He's holy. The humility of expressing himself, herself, through this unkept hair, God characterizes that as one who is holy. And isn't that what they're shooting for? I want to be consecrated. Among the people of Israel, I want to be set apart for a time to display holiness, to be holy before God. And, and the, the hair is an outward expression of holy. Holiness is associated with the length of the hair. The crowning glory of the Nazarite is the humility from the growth and unkept hair. Um, this is in contrast to pagan rituals. In pagan rituals, if you were going to uh, dedicate yourself to the deity, you'd shave your head. You'd shave your body. You'd be a swimmer for a while. I mean, it, you, it's, that's the thing. Completely no hair. But in God's economy... Let it loose, let it hang down, let, let it go wild. That's a display of holiness, a display of humility and holiness. All right. The third requirement. Let's go to verse 6. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. 
all the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. What's the third thing? Stay away from dead bodies. We talked about this again. It brings in the, the holiness code that we saw in chapter 5. Touching dead bodies defiles the living. That's the idea here. And again, um, he can't go near a dead person. So the, the language indicates that he can't, it has the idea of enter. So the, so the, the, the concept is that he can't even go in a house where a, a corpse is. That's problematic if you have a family member that dies. If you're taking this vow, you have a family member dies, you can't, there's a psychological issue there of being able to grieve and go through that process. You have to withhold from that. You have to abstain from that while you're under this Nazarite vow. And he goes into that later here in, in, in verse 9. Um, the, the dead defile the living. We saw that in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And the Nazarite is to have no contact with death. This is the same prohibition that's put on the high priests. The high priest can't touch dead bodies, can't be near dead bodies. The regular priest can. So the Nazarite takes on a requirement, a prohibition that's even more strict than your average priest. They take on the, restri the restriction of a high priest of not being around dead bodies. But oh, what if something happens? Look at verse 9. And if, a man, if any man dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. On the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves, or two pigeons, to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering, and make atonement for him, because he sinned by reason of the dead body. And he shall consecrate his head that same day and separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation and bring a male lamb, a year old, for a guilt offering. But the previous period shall be void because his separation was defiled. So this, if you look at the structure of the passage, this is the middle. You have the, the, the beginning, the, the end, and then in the middle is this issue, the defilement from a sudden death of, of uh, someone near the person under a Nazarite vow. What do they do? In, in a normal circumstance, what would, normally, what would normally happen if you touch a dead body? What, do you remember lo, those many moons ago we were in Leviticus, we talked about this. How would you, what would happen to someone who touches a dead body? Are you unclean for a week? Unclean for seven days, that's right. And you have to wash and present like two turtle doves or? Yes, yeah, man, that's good, y'all remember this stuff. You gotta wash and there's no partridge in a pair, it's just two turtle doves or two pigeons. <laughs> But you wash. There's a there's water that is uh, that has ashes of a heifer from the temple that they would pour over the person who had been defiled by a dead body. That's after seven days, and they're 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 washed and made clean again. A little different here, isn't it? What happens? Shave the head. You got to start over. You start. What did you say? Back to square one. You got to shave the head. An ordinary person is purified by water. But the hair is no longer considered sacred if he, be, if he comes in contact with a dead body. So he's got to shave his head. What else do you have to do? The same thing as everybody else. Two, two small birds, right? Mm -hmm. And those are burnt offering, sin offering. And we know that the sin offering was for expiation to, to cover the sin. And the burnt offering is consecration, being holy to God. And then, and then what does he do? 
He has to consecrate the head in rededication again. I mean, the head is now defiled because of the, the hair has become near the dead body or whatever. So he shaves the head to get rid of that. Consecration of the head again. And then he does what? He offers a lamb as a guilt offering, a reparation. These are normal sacrifices in the sacrificial system in Leviticus. Burn offering, sin offering, guilt offering. What's missing? The washing. There's one more offering, right? The wave offering. Hey! The fellowship. the fellowship offering. The peace offering. That's right. That's not here. Why? Why would you think? Because it wasn't disturbed. Like, What's not done? He didn't, he didn't actually sin. He didn't sin, but he made a vow. And something happens to interrupt the vow. There's no fellowship offering until the vow is complete. So he has to start over without the fellowship offering, and he begins again. He starts from a bald head and grows out. What about the time he spent before? It's void. No credit for time served. He is starting all over. Starting all over. Look at the, look at the way it ends. Verse 13. And this is the law for the Nazarite. When the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb, a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, loaves of flour mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and their grain offerings, and their drink offerings. And the priest shall bring them before the Lord, and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering, and he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord, and with a basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall offer also its grain offering and its drink offering. And the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it in the fire that is under the sacred peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it is boiled, and one uh, unleavened loaf out of the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite, and after he has shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. They are a holy portion for the priest, together with the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed. And after that, the Nazarite, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite, but if he vows an offering to the Lord above his Nazarite vow, as he can afford in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do in addition to the law of the Nazarite. So once he completes this self-prescribed period of Nazarite vow, there's a ceremony. And again, it involves three meat sacrifices, the burnt offering, the sin offering, the peace offering, and each of these have with them their grain offerings and their drink offerings and all that kind of stuff that goes with it. Next, he shaves his head. Again, if, well, if he's had sudden, you know, somebody die next to him, he shaves his head again. And the second temple is kind of interesting. They had a room specifically set aside for this. If you're under Nazarite vow, you go to the you go to the head shave room or something. I don't know what they call it. And you would shave your head, 
And the hair is taken, it's burned under the fellowship offering, the peace offering, to symbolize the completion of the vow. And finally, because this is a joyful celebration, symbolizing the union between God, priests, and the people, the Nazarite does what? He gets to drink his wine. He drinks wine, marking the end of his vow. And so the passage here concludes by stating that these are the minimums. Yeah. No grape, grow your hair, and no touching dead bodies. Those are the minimums for the Nazarite vow. Can you do more? You can do more, as you can afford, it says. Um, all right. What do you do with this? I mean, here we are. What is it, 2018, the last time I checked? What do you do with this? Translated to Luke. Jesus. Thank God for Christ. Thank God for Christ. Jesus took the vow for us. Did he? In what way? <laughs> what does Scripture say of Christ? Oh, let's start there. What? What? He was holy. He was holy, blameless, undefiled. The author of Hebrews says, Apollos says this. For indeed, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, pulled out from the common people, separated from sinners. And exalted above the heavens. I think, I think this Nazarite vow points more to just some interesting background on Samuel and Samson and Paul. Um, I, I find it very interesting that at the Last Supper, what did Jesus say to the disciples? Drink this cup in remembrance of me. I will not taste from the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom when He comes. Interesting. Well, it's interesting you say that because I looked, I really did this. I looked for description. What does He say about Jesus' hair? Jesus was from Nazareth, right? Yeah, He's a Nazarene. It does, John in Revelation talks about the vision of Christ. He makes a specific reference to the hair of Christ being white and glorious like a crown, and a lot of the language of the Nazarite vow is the hair unkept is a crown of... That's a stretch, I think, but it is a thing. The, the, a lot of times when we refer to Nazarite vow, it, it's also the, the, the not taking of the grape is also indicated, although the primary thing is the, is the unkept hair, the long hair. Um, I mean, he overcame death, so that's probably not going to be an issue for him, right? <laughs> Um, but he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I don't, I don't know what to make of that. And I don't want to make too much of it because I don't want to you know, overstep. But I do find it interesting that if, if he is, the impression to me seems to be that he takes some form of the Nazarite vow to confirm to us his dedication, his consecration to fulfill the promise that he makes, which is, that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. Right? Is that the vow? That's the promise he made? I will see it with you in my Father's kingdom? Well, in his humanity, who's he depending on to see that done? His Father, his God. He's depending on God to see that done. Right? And yet, he is taking on himself an additional promise to us, an additional sign of covenant to us. I'm not going to drink of this vine until it's done. It's going to be done. Really, God's going to withhold from him what his son 
<laughs> it's a clear thing. It's a done thing. Um, in the meantime, what does he do to us? Do you remember when he was walking down the road and these people are shouting these statements at him about their dedication to him or whatever? And one of the things that a guy says to him, he says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but let me go bury my mother and father. Let the dead bury the dead. Don't you? Again, a lot of commentators think that that's a, a reference to the Nazarite vow, the dedication that disciples should have to Jesus to let the dead bury their dead. And to, to you follow me, he says. Uh, yeah. Sorry, one interjection. So if, if there's all, under the old system, under the old law, there's all these sacrifices for the sin offering and the burnt <clears throat> offering. Christ's eternal sacrifice once for all time, mm -hmm. does that not negate this? So like when Christ returns, let's say he is under the Nazarite vow, does he still have to bring the two pigeons and the male lamb and the... I, I don't know. That, I don't think that that's yes, really that's an issue because he's been the one, the one sacrifice. I don't think that's really a, a thing that we need to worry about. Because he's been the one sacrifice once for all, and, and it's and it's done. So I don't I don't think it's going there. I think what he's doing is 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 once again displaying that the Old Testament and the New Testament are not disconnected. He's taking on a sign that he doesn't have to. I mean, he is holy, blameless, and undefiled. You don't get more consecrated than Christ. So there's no reason for him to take it. There's no reason for him to do this. But he does it. I think to show, again, to, to go over the top, it's going to happen. Trust me, it's going to happen. And so I don't, I, don't wanna, I don't know that we need to really wrestle over the mechanics of, well, does it do two pigeons or? Yeah, yeah, right. right. So, so I don't, I don't want to get into the kind of this I don't, the, theonomy kind of thing going on with the, what do we do with the pigeons. He, he didn't, after he said that. Of course, he was dead after he said that. Okay, there, there's a bigger point here we're going to, and I think we're getting in the weeds on things that are not necessarily helpful. But um, So what do you do then? If he's calling us to be Nazarites, for ex I mean, again, that's, that's big picture, not specifically follow this numbers provision. How does that, what does that look like? Is he calling us then, don't let the dead bury the dead, is he calling us then to not grow our hair out? Oops. Uh, or to, is he calling us not to drink wine? Well, there are a lot of Presbyterians that would be really upset with that. Um, is he calling us not to touch dead people or to be around those who mourn? Well, of course, that's not the issue. It's not the specifics. How are we to live consecrated lives? What does that look like for the believer? If this, if this is the physical expression of that, and I think generally you see in the, in the old to the new, there's a physical, sh this is a weird way to say it, but there's a physical shadow or picture of what is internal and spiritual in the New Testament. What does that look like for the New Testament? What is the language that the authors of the New Testament use? So I went searching, and, I, and, and, and this is kind of, this is Paul. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's in Philippians 2. What is he saying? Our consecration to God is demonstrated 
by our thankfulness, by our joyfulness. You cut out a lot of sin in your life. I cut out, I can, cut out a lot of sin in my life if I'm thankful and content with what God is doing in me rather than spend so much time being discontent, which leads to bitterness and anger and lust and greed and all the other things. It flows from, I'm better than what God has given me. I'm not thankful. So if we want to live constantly, if we want to let the dead bury their dead, we live as those who are thankful and humble and satisfied with Christ. So let your joy loose. <laughs> right? Let your, let your gratefulness hang down. Humble thankfulness puts to death a lot of remaining corruption, if not all of it. I mean, it all stems from, I'm better than what God has given me. Isn't that pride? All right, that's what I have today. Anything else, any other comments, questions, fruit to be thrown? Other than grapes, apparently. <laughs> All right, it's a little bit later, so we'll pray and move on. God, we do thank you. We thank you for the gift of thankfulness. We don't have it. We are not, we are not innate, grateful creatures uh, because of our corruption in Adam and you have in Christ redeemed us by your spirit and given us a new heart that we are still learning to grow in thankfulness and gratefulness. It's a hard lesson to learn and it's one that, that I know I haven't learned and, and don't live there. And so I pray that your spirit would, would help me and help us to look for ways to be grateful and to display as light shining in darkness the goodness and grace of God by being joyful, not naively joyful or stupid joyful, but really joyful, recognizing that every breath is a gift from you, that every meal we eat is your great kindness and grace to us. And so we pray that you would help us to have grateful hearts and thankfulness would be the rule of the day in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Isn't there, uh, this is a general statement, isn't there several, I guess, Old Testament?